I've got Mr. Stuart Cleave here today, who's a consultant paediatric surgeon at the Royal London Hospital, and he's the paediatric trauma lead at one of the busiest trauma hospitals in Europe. Um, today we're going to talk to him a bit about trauma within paediatric surgery, and particularly solid organ injury. So hello, Stuart. Um, first question, uh, since the advent of the major trauma centres in the UK, have you noticed an impact in the volume of paediatric trauma and roughly what percentage is blunt compared with penetrating? Hi Kate, thanks for the invitation to do the podcast. Um, so since the inception of networks, we've uh, noticed that uh, approximately 90% of paediatric trauma is blunt um, and about 10% is penetrating. And the penetrating trauma is increasing in proportion. Um, so at the London, we get approximately 300 trauma calls per year, and this is, is gradually increasing. And when we look at the network, approximately 50% of injured children uh, come to the MTC and 50% uh, go to trauma units. Okay. Do you tend to see the more serious traumas then? Uh, we do, although um, there are still patients that are severely injured that present to the trauma units because the parents triage uh, to the local hospital yep. and pick their child up. And we found that... Um, a significant proportion of parents will pick their severely injured child up and just carry it to the, the local hospital. So um, looking at how you've done it at the London, because I know within the um, four trauma centres in London it's all slightly set up differently, but how is your trauma team set up and who attends each of your trauma calls? Um, so um, the paediatric, we have a resident paediatric surgery at middle grade and there's a 24-7 ED consultant and we have the paediatricians um, and then for the code reds, the, the major hemorrhage protocol activations, we also have the trauma surgeon uh, that uh, is called as well as the paediatric surgery consultant on call. Okay. Uh, and and that's, that's made it much easier by protocolising um, the fact that each code red automatically alerts the trauma surgeon and the paediatric surgeon on call. Um, you get a much faster response for the, the particularly seriously injured children. So who can activate the code red then? So it can be pre-hospital or the ED consultant. Um, or, but, but there's because there's always an ED consultant um, at trauma calls, um, they're the only person... Yeah, well, you'd expect them to be there, yeah, and then they would call it. Okay, and when did Code Reds? When did they come into being? So, uh, so, it's, so it's relatively recent. So that um, we've followed the success of the adult trauma service that have demonstrated uh, an improvement in mortality by having uh, Code Reds. So uh, over the last two or three years, we've introduced them and. 
are hopefully calling them more and more because I think uh, we're still undercalling paediatric code reds um, because uh, children declare themselves so late and so precipitously that we should be calling them uh, much more than we do. Um, and so you've talked about in terms of a code red what it means in terms of personnel so you'll get the consultant um uh, from paediatric surgery and from um, adult trauma but what else does it what other implications does it have um so we also have um, a paediatric anaesthetist and the theater team uh, and the intensive care team will all be alerted so the uh, paediatric theaters will start setting up for um to do a thoracotomy or a, a laparotomy um we haven't quite got to the stage where we alert the interventional radiologist, but they are well used to being in the hospital within 30 minutes of our, uh, being called. So and, and does it naturally activate the massive transfusion protocol? It, it does, yeah. Okay. And what it's, I think now you're moving away, my understanding is, from a crystalloid resuscitation. So, Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's very much uh, thought to be a... Um, a negative thing to give uh, crystalloid. So pre-hospital will will give blood um, as the first uh, fluid of resuscitation, and we'd certainly do that in the emergency department. But, but I guess the the problem is that sometimes patients don't declare themselves and, until one or two hours after the injury, um, so patients do uh, still get crystalloid if if they clearly. Um, shot and we'd go straight for blood and blood products. Thank you. Um, so what are the biggest differences in the physiology between the small child and an adult and how do you compensate for this? Uh, there are two main points. I think the, the difficulty is that there aren't any clearly defined parameters for pulse and blood pressure as there are in adults. So uh, major hemorrhage protocols activated if uh, systolic blood pressure is below 90 in an adult, whereas we don't have those refined cutoffs in children. So it's, it's much more difficult to call a major hemorrhage protocol. Um, and secondly, children um, compensate for a long time before they uh, then decompensate, whereas in adults it tends to be a more linear relationship uh, so it's, it's, it's more difficult to spot so for those two reasons um, people looking after injured children are at a disadvantage how do you compensate for this um, I, I guess you have to be aware of these two facts and potentially overcall um, major hemorrhage protocol activations in children which I don't think we're anywhere near doing yet. Okay. So can you tell me a little bit more about the trauma triad of death and its implications on severe trauma? Right. So okay, presumably you're talking about the triad of hypothermia, coagulopathy and metabolic acidosis. And I think uh, paediatric anaesthetists uh, and surgeons are, are are well used to having to keep neonates warm and um, aware of uh, acidosis. Probably not quite so aware of 
coagulopathy. And I think there's a, a lot of work to be done in monitoring and using thromboelastography in the management of severely injured children. Um, so we're, we're looking forward to getting some, some evidence and some protocols for the rare but uh, severe circumstance with a child that has sustained uh, a, a major uh, hypovolemic injury. And have you started looking at um, sort of precision uh, coagulopathy in those patients? Have you started using TEG at the Royal London? Uh, so we, we do use TEG, um, but uh, it happens so rarely that it's, it's not um, standard practice. Um, and the, the uh, mechanism for giving one-to-one-to-one of uh, blood FFP and platelets is, is so well ingrained by the ED nurses and ODPs and anaesthetists that it happens before we generally have the, the Rotem results. Um, but there's uh, definitely an opportunity to, uh, using research fellows attached to the trauma service, to start taking those samples and looking at the results to see if we're doing the right thing. Okay. And have you started, you would talk about one-to-one-to-one. Are you using whole blood now at all? Uh, uh, so the and, and the adults have definitely given, been given whole blood. I'm not sure if we've given a child whole blood yet, but there's, there's no reason not to. Okay. Um, so we'll start with a, a, a patient now. Um, a five-year-old um, restrained male passenger in a vehicle comes into recess and following the trauma call is resuscitated with 20 mil per kilo of blood products. There's a seatbelt sign on his abdomen, chest x-ray is normal um, and there are no other detectable injuries and the GCS is 15. Is there any indication currently for doing fast scans in children? You're happy with his airway and his breathing. And to be honest, I didn't see the indication for a fast scan because my understanding is that there needs to be uh, about 500 mils of blood for blood to be detectable. And in a patient of that age, a four-year-old, that is going to be 50% of their circulating volume. So they're, they're either uh, going to be moribundly shocked and need a thoracotomy or a laparotomy immediately, or they're going to be stable and have a diagnostic CT. So he ends up going for a CT scan of his abdomen and pelvis and that reveals a severe splenic trauma involving the hilum with a blush in the arterial phase. There are no other obvious injuries apart from a hemoperitoneum goes along with the splenic trauma. Um, what would your management be? Uh, so so I would uh, focus the majority of our attention on uh, the major hemorrhage activation and uh, giving blood products and I'd ask the interventional radiologist to either look at the images or make their way into the hospital with a view to embolizing the splenic injury. And so if he stabilized from a, he no longer needed blood products, but he had this blush on his CT scan, is that an indication that you need to do something or can you wait and see? So the, um, we're fortunate enough that the interventional radiologists uh, will uh, quite ably be able to 
pick the patients that need their assistance with uh, embolization or that can be left alone and they have a relatively low threshold for embolizing so uh, I haven't been in a situation where they've declined to embolize and then there's been a problem okay or equally that they've embolized and then there's been a problem so when I started as a junior registrar in paediatrics uh, surgery, um, we were still using the APSA guidelines from 1999 for the management of blunt abdominal trauma, um, meaning that you worked out the grade of the injury, either the liver or the spleen or the kidney, and then resuscitated accordingly. Um, and nowadays there appears to have been a move more towards hemodynamic s- stability. What has led to this change? Um, it's a very interesting question because uh, I suspect that the majority of centres are still using the APSA guidelines plus a day for bed rest. Um, um, so you mean grade of injury plus a day? Um, because it's uh, it's ingrained in practice. It's deemed to be safe. Uh, there isn't. There hasn't historically been a pressure on. Uh, bed days and the term hemodynamic stability is really difficult to define in children and actually we found that um, a a lot of our children end up staying for longer than the ASMAC guidelines due to pain or safeguarding issues or or lots of other issues so I think it's going to be a significant undertaking to change the length of stay for children with blunt abdominal injury based on, in inverted commas, hemodynamic stability rather than the APS guidelines. So what are you currently using at the London then? Uh, so it's it's uh, bespoke, if you like, and uh, we use neither the APS guidelines nor the ATMAC. We um, mobilise according to pain rather than either of those guidelines um, but I, I, I totally appreciate that there's an opportunity to to improve and protocolize management uh, at the London and nationwide. And so what do you consider a failure of non-operative management now? So say you're going down the non-operative <coughs> I'm trying to recall an episode where we've elected to have non-operative management and then had to resort to operative or much more likely interventional radiology management. So um, I'd need to look at the data, but I only recall patients having to undergo interventional interventional radiology embolization as a failure of uh, non-operative management rather than surgical intervention. And so have you had many patients that have had to go in the last five, six years at the London just for a um, failure, early failure of non-operative management then? So say you can't get on tr- control of their um, blood pressure or their blood requirement or their tachycardia. Have you ended up having to do splenectomies or pack livers? Um, I think in the... Uh, the last 10 years, we've done one splenectomy. Wow. Uh, and that, that must uh, be uh, approximately two and a half 
thousand trauma called patients, maybe three thousand trauma called patients. And was that a pretty early? That was, that was early. That was straight from um, ET to splenectomy. With other injuries, or with other injuries. Um. So going back to this four-year-old boy. Um. So the boy is hemodynamically completely stable on PICU. But when you review him in the morning, he's now frankly peritonitic and a plain x-ray reveals free air. What are the most likely sites of um, perforation and what are your management options? And what, um, when would you implement definitive options versus damage control surgery? So I guess the obvious injuries are duodenal injury, although it's, it's possible that you've got judgment uh, uh, involved in the injury or even chronic injury. Um, so this cannot be managed by interventional radiology. So you will need a, a laparotomy. Um, I don't think anybody would undertake a, a laparoscopy in this situation. Um, so probably do an upper midline laparotomy and uh, find the duodenal perforation. And depending on the size of the duodenal injury, uh, close, maybe use a, a mental patch if it was particularly bad. Then you'd think about um, using uh, a malaco catheter to drain. But if the, if the patient's stable, then I'd be looking at doing definitive surgery. Okay. So is there anything you ask your theatre team with before a trauma laparotomy, especially in the setting of someone with a grade four slash five uh, splenic injury as well that you know is there? Well, I think you just need to prep the team because as paediatric surgeons, we're so used to doing elective surgery and, and not used to having to be dynamic and change the plan. Uh, so I think you'd need to motivate them and you need to make sure you've got suckers. You need to make sure you've got the um, rapid infusion device uh, and, and just get people more um, in, engaged in what was going on. Um, so operation, you decide to move remove the spidleen um, due to ongoing um, vascular instability. Once you've opened, the anaesthetist is now much happier and you find the site of perforation is the second part of the duodenum and the perforation is about half the circumference, maybe a bit more. Um, you've talked about um, just closing primarily. Do you, what other options do you have for the spleen? You can put a malachite catheter in. Have you ever used a Rouen-Wire loop or um, close off the pylorus? Um, so, so the situation that you uh, have explained, I, I haven't encountered um, of needing to do a splenectomy uh due to vascular instability when you've gone back as a sort of a semi-elective delayed perforation. Uh, so I wouldn't necessarily rush to remove the spleen because I would go to some lengths to avoid disrupting it and causing bleeding. Um, but if, if there was hemorrhage from the spleen, then and the only option was to remove it, we would. Um, so it would depend on whether we could close the duodenum primarily without significantly reducing the circumference of the duodenum. So it would be a judgment call. Um, and you'd be surprised 
uh, what you could get away with. And if need be, I'd, I'd leave a uh, cath. So I don't think I, I, w- I wouldn't rush to do a diversion procedure in the first instance. So I'd happily leave a tube and if necessary, come back. Let's say instead um, that this boy was in fact fine following a period of non-operative management. He was vitally stable um, and didn't require any further blood products and was discharged from PICU the next day. What's your current management for getting him to mobilise? I think you've already mentioned pain. Um, when do you discharge him? When do you follow him up? And when do you return um, him to his normal activities? Uh, so, uh, as, as you say, in our experience, the ability to mobilise is usually related to pain other injuries or safeguarding issues uh, we would see here we would do a contrast enhanced ultrasound from day five onwards and if that was normal discharge if there were uh, concerns about a pseudo aneurysm it's likely that he'd undergo embolization and then we'd see in clinic at six weeks with a view to getting him back to normal activities. Um, And so you've mentioned uh, contrast enhanced ultrasounds. Do you use this for all of your blunt trauma patients? Um, And um, what are the advantages and downsides to it? So at at the moment we undertake contrast enhanced ultrasound on all children that have blunt solid abdominal organ injury above uh, and including grade three. Uh, and also we have a very open mind uh, as to its efficacy and um, it has picked up pseudoaneurysms that have required embolization but equally we have had at least one episode of anaphylaxis that has required adrenaline and it's, it's under evaluation and I, I think it's, it's yet to be decided what the optimum use of contrast-enhanced ultrasound is. So if you've got a grade three injury who's ready for home at day two, do you keep them all in till day five? Uh, Paradoxically, yes. Okay. Um, And so when a trauma comes in, um, this is moving away from uh, blunt trauma, but just general trauma, when and how do you go about clearing a C-spine? When is it not safe to clear a C-spine clinically? Um, and when do you utilise X-rays, CT or MRI to evaluate that in children? Um, so uh, nothing too surprising. Uh, a C-spine X-ray is part of the primary survey, and uh, if there were concerns about. Uh, consciousness or distracting injury then we would not clear a c-spine and if there were clinical or radiological concerns then we'd move to a ct um, or an mri um what's your experience been of the emergency room uh, trauma thoracotomy when have they been indicated and how are they done and what have your outcomes been um, so uh, we've done 11 thoracotomies in children over the last 11 years. Some have been pre-hospital. Um, there have been 
uh, at least five survivors out of those 11 uh, and, and there's been a huge variation in injury uh, from massive transections uh, to injuries of the subclavian vessels to the internal mammary artery to penetrating uh, pericardial and uh, cardiac injuries and they're always done in conjunction with the trauma surgeons. Okay. And just to clarify, the internal mammary artery was not done by actually the thoracotomy no, no, that, itself? That was, that was a, a penetrating injury. And I think your most recent case is pretty interesting. If you could tell us a little bit more about your most recent... Um, yes, yeah, so, so that was a, a four-year-old that came in having been shot by an air rifle pellet who was well on presentation uh, but then collapsed uh, before any imaging uh, other than chest aid chest x-ray had been done and underwent a thoracotomy and evacuation of pericardial hematoma and uh, recovered a circulating um, oh, sorry a cardiac output but um, the air pellet remained within the cardiac silhouette. So a, a decision had to be made whether we attempted to retrieve that in a centre that uh, is not able to offer uh, paediatric cardiac bypass and um, in the absence of support, uh, we proceeded to evacuate the air pellet and um, with success and he was discharged a week after injury that's pretty amazing um and what's been i think recently over the last three years in the royal london you've had a pediatric trauma fellow uh, namely a darcy pediatric trauma fellow and what projects have they been undertaking in the last few years and what's your vision for the future of the trauma networks particularly in london um, so the, the Darcy Fellows have, have really changed what we have been able to offer. Um, and the first Darcy Fellow uh, was able to demonstrate the, the massive deficits in data and was able to combine, combine fairly rudimentary databases um, to give us uh, 10 years of, of data um, and, and so much has sprung from that um, and this has allowed us to organise a pan-London prospective evaluation of paediatric injury and trauma and we look forward to publishing uh, in conjunction with the trauma units and major trauma centres uh, across London the, the data from that um, and I'd highly recommend that to um, other centres if, if, because you'll be aware of the problems and having a fellow will really allow you to um, move things forward. Um, thank you so much uh, Stuart Cleave for this podcast. We'll have to get you back here again, maybe against your will to cover uh, chest pancreatic trauma, non-accidental injury and penetrating trauma soon. Thanks very much. Kate, it's been my pleasure. <laughs>